Welcome to Navigate. My name is Will McAleer and I'm the president of World Travel Protection. I'm based in Canada. I'll be your host for today for part two in our Mile High Medicine series. Now, in the last episode, we covered medical emergency on planes and some of the things you can do on long haul flights to stay healthy. This episode focuses on the importance of a fit to fly program and how that helps organizations to support their travelers, especially expats on assignment, perhaps to remote sites where medical assistance might not be readily available. Now, today I'm joined by two experts in the field. First, we've got Dr. Joel Lockwood. He's a chief medical officer for the Americas for World Travel Protection. And in addition, Dr. Lockwood is active as a trauma lead at a major trauma center in Toronto and has also served as a transport medicine physician at a government-operated air ambulance service. Welcome, Dr. Lockwood. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Will. We've also got Graham Williamson, someone I've known in the uh, in the business for a number of years, who is the CEO for Life Support Air Medical Services, a URAMI-accredited worldwide provider of international air medical patient transportation. And additionally, commercial repatriation services are also provided by his firm. Welcome, Graham. Thanks, Will. Great to be here and uh, happy to uh, lend some perspective to this very important topic today. Yeah, so so mile high medicine and fit to fly specifically. Dr. Lockwood, when we, when we talk about fit to fly, tell us what it means to you. Well, you know, I think it means a few things, Will, and I think it kind of depends on who you are. Now, for the, the lay public that may be going for a flight, uh, they may be asked to fill out a form by their GP or, or doctor saying that they're safe to fly on a commercial flight. And so I'd say that that's one major thing that it applies to the general population. But for us in our work, there's also a few other kind of populations that we look at. One is people that have had a medical emergency uh, and how they can safely travel uh, and what that exactly means. And then the second is, I think, maybe how we should be thinking about it a bit more. And I like to kind of term it as fitness to travel, um, because while flying is one thing, you know, working abroad in a different setting, there may be some medical considerations that we want to pay attention to. Um, so those are the kind of ways I think that we can look at that topic. Huh. So interesting. So what you're saying is it's a difference between individual and a corporate definition. So that being the case, if we really take a look at that corporate definition or, or rather the definition used when considering whether a patient, you know, following a medical emergency is fit to fly. So, so what organizations and people need to consider, right? When, when they're, when they're going in and they're, they're on an expat assignment uh, before they, they get sick. Yeah, I think that that's a really good way to look at it, Will. And I think we need to think of of clients and businesses, uh, individuals' health, even before they go. And maybe the best way to bring it up is is a bit of an example for a hypothetical situation. So let's say that there's a business that's hired a a young person to work in a mine in a very remote place. You know, obviously it's going to be hundreds of kilometers away from a hospital uh, and somewhere where they've never been before. And, you know, obviously it's a strapping young person who's strong and healthy otherwise, but Unless things are investigated a bit more, you know, sometimes there can, there can be some problems. 
And let's say maybe, again, this hypothetical situation that this person has a drinking problem that they may not have mentioned before. Uh, and they get travel, they travel to a mine that doesn't have alcohol. So obviously things may be fine on the flight there. You know, they may have had a few drinks uh, while in the airport lounge, but upon arriving at a dry facility, they may experience signs of alcohol withdrawal. And so obviously that's a medical emergency and that, that is going to put that person at risk. And certainly the repatriation options at that point are going to be very limited. Uh, they may take some time and they may be quite costly. So I think thinking of it holistically is a really good way to look at it because obviously that could be avoided, um, you know, if, if it's identified early, but identifying it late leads to some obviously medical liability and also cost. So a little bit of preparation is, is key there. I like that. So now let's take the situation. Someone's arrived at destination. They've, they've, uh, they've had a medical emergency. And they're pretty sick. What are the types of considerations that that you look at as a as a physician to determine whether or not they are fit to fly? Yeah, there's a number of considerations to think of, and I think that the way that I kind of categorize in my in my mind is sort of a risk benefit for the patient. So obviously, depending on where the patient is currently and the resources they have available, is going to it's going to mean a lot. Um, now, if someone's in a resource high environment. You know, I think that obviously flight is a risk, you know, because of a few reasons. One of them is because of physiology. Obviously, people are in a confined area at pressure with limited resources. Um, things like gas laws change. So that's one area of risk. But I think even more importantly, it's, a, it's a, an area where there's not a lot of help to get if you are on, a, on a, either a commercial flight or an air ambulance. So those things need to be, I think, calculated quite carefully. Um, the second is, is, you know, what, what kind of, what's a reasonable expectation to think of if the patient does fly? You know, how likely is something to go wrong? And I think that this is where there's a lot of nuance. There's some, there's some guidelines that are driven by expert opinion on when people can fly, but it doesn't really take in that risk. Um, you know, an example of this is, you know, uh, let's say someone has had a stroke. Now, typically we try not to have people fly for about 10 to 14 days after a stroke. But if they're in a very remote location, you know, I think that the risk of staying there is going to be higher than the risk of flying. And I think that's where it takes, you know, a lot of nuance to really think of what is best for this, this patient at this, uh, at this point. Um, you know, we know that things like after stroke care and rehab will reduce the, uh, the, uh, uh, the damage that a stroke can cause. And I think sometimes looking at those rules like hard and fast and under no circumstances can we fly someone after a stroke doesn't take into account the complexity of each individual or each client's uh, particular medical condition. Wow. So a lot gets weighed in, not just a simple checkbox exercise. You're looking at what's actually happening, what's being presented. Very interesting. Now, Graham, on your side, I know you receive a lot of calls uh, for help from medical assistance companies. What are some of the main reasons for needing a repatriation? Yeah, so we break it down into into three categories. the The first one is, uh, you know, an evacuation or repatriation, where, um, as Joel described, uh, the 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 expatriate, the worker, the traveler has found themselves in in a difficult situation, in a in a remote area, in a work camp, um, in a in a far flung region where the employer um, has uh, has brought them to. And, and in those cases, we typically take an evacuation approach where we're transporting someone to higher level of care. Uh, 
next circumstances where we're repatriating someone, perhaps they have a, a, a more of a chronic as opposed to an acute illness or injury, something that's not likely to recover or uh, necessarily improve in the short term. Maybe they're looking at a few weeks to recover from a fracture or from a stroke, and, and we're going to bring them closer to home so that they have local support. They can be with friends, they can be with family and in an environment that's more uh, conducive to the care that they require. And, uh, and, and, and then next is, uh, is making sure that uh, they might have access to uh, commercial airline resources or uh, less, uh, less burdensome for the employer or for the customer or client, such as an air ambulance, which is very cost uh, intense. Uh, we have repatriation and fit to fly options on commercial flights. So from our perspective, it's really about taking a look at the, at the case on an individual basis. So we receive these calls all the time where we have a, you know, a step-by-step approach at looking at the case um, from the top down. It does the, does the customer or the patient need immediate evacuation to a higher level of care where they're, we call it a LLTO, life limb organ threatened case, which is, uh, you know, in our, in our world is a red call. Everything stops and uh, and we we put our, all of our resources into an immediate evacuation or we we might go all the way down to saying you know uh, the customer might be fit to travel in a week or two from now and can take a say a, a Lufthansa or United Airlines uh, or a Qantas flight home and uh, and they don't need immediate evacuation so it runs the full continuum and full spectrum from 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 now immediate through to uh, through to a, a more of a pre-planned event wow so it's more than just getting them on a, a quick Learjet to get back into their home. You can take them to get better care if they can't get it at destination or get them back home, depending on the nature of it. I, I, I like those those options. Yeah, precisely. And it's about having a collaborative approach uh, with the insurer and with the assistance company and with the physician medical directors, both here on our side where we have our flight uh, physicians, our chief medical officer and chief flight nurse uh, review the cases in conjunction and collaboration with the with the medical underwriters or with the insurer, with the assistance company to discuss the, the nature of the case, uh, the urgency of the case, uh, the level of care at destination where the, where the customer is right now, where they've suffered their event and uh, the options available both for evacuation, uh, stay, treat a little while longer, you know, perhaps things will get better or to, uh, to decide if, uh, if a repatriation is necessary at that point. Wow. So, so from a fit to fly perspective, maybe you can walk us through what's involved in a commercial escort versus a private air ambulance evacuation. Yeah, so it um, commercial escort and private air ambulance. There, they interestingly um, will they run from the two spectrums. The commercial looks first and foremost at the stability of the patient to travel on a commercial airline, and, and exactly as you described, as I alluded to, United, Lufthansa, Qantas, Emirates. These are these are when uh, we collaborate with our assistance company partners to put the patient on a commercial flight, and we certainly and absolutely do take some very sick. Uh, people on commercial flights that we can appropriately manage. But that's a conversation that has to occur with the airline as well, because it, it is, after all, their plane, their route, and they want to make sure that uh, that their passengers as a whole and the flight is is looked after in addition to meeting uh, the needs of, of, their, uh, of the patient and the customer. Then we have the air ambulance uh, side, which is a dedicated aircraft, as you described, a Learjet. Uh, it could be a Challenger, a Falcon. It really depends on where um, where the insured is um, and where they're going and what the distances and ranges are, and and believe it or not, 
when we when we flip back and forth sometimes between commercial or air ambulance, it 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 often focuses on logistics. We can cover longer distances with a commercial flight than we can with a Learjet. Conversely, we can cover uh, there might be areas in the world, and there I shouldn't say might there are all sorts of spots over the world where employers have workforces. Joel mentioned the mine site. So for us to fly into a mine site, we wouldn't be able to take um, a, a Qantas flight into the mine site. It just doesn't exist, but we can take a, a King Air or a Learjet or a Challenger jet into. So it might not be a medical need that the customer has versus a logistical need. And that's where options such as private charter, air ambulance uh, come into play. So again, what it really comes down to, Will, is a collaborative discussion between our medical team and your medical team to uh, to decide on the best mode of transport. How quickly do you need it done? And uh, and what's the what's the most uh, cost effective and uh, and beneficial route for the patient? So you must have uh, you must have. I said you get lots of calls from us. You must have been to some fairly far flung places. So what does that look like in terms of coordination and, and getting people out? You know, uh, it's uh, it's always interesting. No day is ever the same. Um, we uh, we definitely have a variety of cases um, where we've had to approach it with creativity, most especially over the last um, 18, 19, 20 months uh, where commercial options have been limited, but we've been able to use uh, charter uh, resources effectively. But really, um, you know, I say the middle of nowhere, tongue in cheek, but it is the middle of nowhere. Uh, we, our clients uh, are engaging in resource development, mining, oil and gas exploration, defense, uh, telecommunications, uh, where we are finding uh, people all over the world. So really, it's uh, it's a, as we say, it's when that email chimes and there's an alert, um, you don't know where you're going uh, until you read it and you finish wrapping your head around it and formulating a plan. And that's the beauty is even though we have pre-planned responses, so we work with our customers, such as World Travel Protection, to pre-identify, pre-plan the resources, knowing that there's a group uh, there's a group that's going to be traveling to a certain remote area. We can provide that advice. We do provide that advice. And absolutely, when the call comes in, we've, 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 we've pre-planned those events most of the time. And of course, if, it's, uh, if the workers found themselves or the travelers found themselves in an area that uh, was unexpected, and sometimes that could be they're traveling to work. Maybe they're connecting through Dubai and they develop chest pain in Dubai. Perhaps they're on their way to work in a, a job in India or in Pakistan and connecting through and, and we find them in places that might not have been planned for. And we have to, uh, you know, we have to get to our resources mobilized from that point. So, so planning, interesting thing that you brought up. So you get a request to go in and, and, and get a particular patient and it might be in an easy to get to location or it might be far flung. What happens when you arrive there and maybe it's not quite the way that you were told it was? What do you do? How do you respond? You know, that's, Will, that's the beauty of uh, medicine uh, in assistance is that until we actually put our hands on that patient, it's a, it is essentially a paper email and telephone-based exercise. So the first and foremost is making sure that we do a comprehensive review and, and review all the information that's been provided to, to us by our assistance company partners, such as yourself. Uh, the next step is making sure that our air medical crew and our medical team is involved in the discussions and, and reaching out to the treating uh, physician and the treating medical team. Sometimes that's possible and sometimes it's not possible. If it's possible and, and we can have a 
a dialogue with the care team, that's that's that checks a major box for us, provides us the degree of, of comfort knowing what we're getting into. And uh, but sometimes uh, communications are blacked out, communications are not available. There, there are sometimes in, in certain areas, um, the hospital might be unwilling to have a conversation. Some hospitals might not want to talk to us on the phone. And so prying that information out uh, can be very difficult. So we have a variety of, of, of resources that are available to us. And believe it or not, we get, we get creative. We get our hands dirty. We will ask to speak to the patient on the phone. If we, if we can't speak to the medical team, we'll call the patient and say, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And if you can have a conversation with us on the telephone, that's amazing because you're you're better than you're better than we expected. If we can chat with you, we might talk to a family member, a supervisor, or a coworker. But you know, at the end of the day, um, we have to make a decision as a air ambulance and a medical transport organization: is this patient fit to fly? And our our criteria is very simple: do they need evacuation? If so, yes, we fly. So my background is as a paramedic. Uh, I worked for a service very similar to the one that uh, Joel has provided medical advice to, where when the phone rings, the red phone goes, you fly, or that's it. That patient needs to reach a higher level of care. So it doesn't matter what's wrong with you. You you could you could be missing a limb or having in the or having a huge heart attack, but staying where you are is not an option. Staying where you are is a threat to your life and health. So we're going to get you out no matter what. We'll stabilize you. We'll do our best to stabilize you, but we're going to evacuate you. Whereas the second conversation is uh, a repatriation where maybe they're traveling on a commercial airline or even by air ambulance. We have a responsibility to make sure that the patient is fit to travel if we're doing it on an elective or a cost containment basis. So, um, so we'll make sure before we leave, before we spend the customer's money, we make that phone call. And again, we make that phone call 15 minutes before the plane leaves. You know, exactly case in point this morning, we are uh, bringing someone from uh, Florida uh, up to uh, Montreal in Canada, and uh, everything was fine yesterday. Patient was ready to go. It's a totally normal routine hip fracture, but this morning the customer had a bout of chest pain. So we have a responsibility to stop that aircraft from going because they're in a great hospital in Florida, and we just need to make sure it's safe for the customer to travel. We're satisfied that the customer is safe. We'll take care of that chest pain issue once they get back up to Canada. 20 minute delay to have a conversation doctor to doctor and we're on our way. Great. And Joel, from from your side, what happens when you're expecting a particular course of action? And maybe it's not disagreement, but there's there's lack of clarity between uh, you as uh, chief medical officer for an assistance company and the air ambulance provider on scene. How do you work through that? so I think that, you know, there's there's a, a number of kind of issues to go through there. The first thing is, I mean, I think that we've got a lot of great air ambulance providers and, we, and we're all kind of on, on board with the goal. And the goal is to make the right decision for the right patient. However, there sometimes can be conflict for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's related to language issues. Obviously, we have clients kind of all over the world uh, and communicating uh, sometimes can be difficult and we try to mitigate that as much as possible. Um, sometimes it can be medical issues. But it's usually not something that we kind of can't take a step back and sort out. Um, you know, we've worked with lots of different air ambulance providers, and occasionally, if they see something that's quite a bit different than what we see, I think we just need to take a step back and have a good discussion and really understand kind of where our partners are coming from and what their concern is. Sometimes, you know, I think that we can do our best to discuss with the physicians, the patient, or the family, but really being there is, is something that's very valuable. 
Um, and I'd say that it's, it's really kind of quite rare that we can't come to a kind of shared decision model using the kind of same shared values about making the best decision uh, for our clients and patients. So I'd imagine it's, uh, it's really a, a process of making sure that you're also asking them the types of questions to make sure that the way that they get to their decision lines up with that best of patient care. Yeah, I think a big part of it is kind of understanding, you know, where people are coming from when when there is a sudden kind of change in plan or something comes kind of that's that's much different than advertised. And generally speaking, I think we're able to kind of work it out uh, and figure out what's best for the patient. So I know we're getting near the end of our time together here, but you know, when we think about mile high medicine and and fit to fly, uh, perhaps I'll throw it to you first, uh, Doctor Lockwood. Any other closing thoughts about about how we look at whether a patient's fit to fly or not? So I'd say that, you know, the fit to fly kind of paradigm is it's it's a lot more kind of complex, I think, than people realize because it, there's a lot of other factors that need to be taken into account when deciding who to transport, um, you know, under what sort of circumstances to transport and using what teams to transport them. Obviously, air ambulances now are, are very close to flying hospitals. And sometimes sending a team like that, that can be the number one intervention. If they're in a very low resource setting, you know, they, they can start to get better when a medical team arrives. Um, other times, you know, it's, it's really about making sure that they're safe to be on, you know, a commercial flight and that the risk of them decompensating from either a known or unknown medical condition is incredibly low uh, and that, that, a, that a transport can happen safely. So I, I think my kind of closing would be that, you know, I want clients and patients to know that really there's kind of a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Sometimes it's medical. Sometimes, like Graham was saying, it's logistical. Uh, sometimes it's even based on things like language. But there's no matter what, there's always kind of a large team kind of looking out for your best interest when you choose to travel. Good points to, uh, good points to consider indeed. Graham, closing thoughts? Yeah, absolutely, Will. So first and foremost, uh, I think it, it, it's ensuring that customers and and consumers of the assistance services have plans in place, that there there is great communication between the uh, between the employer, between the the travel company and the assistance company. Most especially working with an experienced assistance company, an assistance company that truly has a global reach and has a global network is very important. Those assistance companies will have the experience in operating in remote areas, have the experience in dealing with mine sites, with uh, with uh, far away places that we might not yet have heard of until uh, an emergency occurs. And then working with an experienced provider, it's um, you know it's we we are in a global environment now. We are in an environment where workforces are spread around the world, specialized expertise. And the employers have a, you know, a responsibility to take care of those folks. And that starts, again, with making plans, working with an experienced assistance company who's going to work with an experienced air ambulance company. So that is pre-planning fit to fly before the emergency occurs. And what, if those three items are in place, then it actually goes relatively smoothly and quickly where you've got you know, an, an employer can have great conversations with their assistance company. And as Joel said, very rarely, if ever, does an assistance company and an air ambulance company come into any sort of disagreement on fit to fly because this is our bread and butter. This is the uh, this is what we do every day, 365 days a year. So it just allows things to go really smoothly. When someone needs an evacuation or a repatriation, it can happen in hours. I cannot tell you 
Uh, you know, how many times we encounter events with customers and clients that don't don't plan these things, don't think these things through. They just go ahead and insure somebody and uh, and then, you know, and then it hits the fan and they don't have any idea what they're doing. This is what we have to do. It saves lives, it saves limbs, and it saves you guys time and, and your customers money. What I can tell you is that when we deal with corporate clients and we deal with group benefit plans and stuff where there's a, you know, it's, it's just different than dealing with a, someone's purchased $25 of insurance on their, on their MasterCard. Those are nightmares to deal with, right? Policy limits and this and that. When I, when I phone you and say, I got to spend $220,000 to fly to the middle of nowhere, I actually really mean we got to spend $220,000 and we have to do it within 24 hours. And so just having that flow is, uh, and that willingness to jump uh, is important. Very well put. Graham Williamson, CEO for Life Support Air Medical Services. Thank you for the time. And I'd also like to thank Frank Harrison, our Regional Security Director, for doing all of the great work behind the scenes to make this happen. Dr. Joel Lockwood, Chief Medical Officer for World Travel Protection. Uh, I know I've learned a few things and hopefully our listeners have learned in the second part of the Mile High Medicine, a Navigate podcast.